I got to tell you, I almost want to say, let's just skip the message and have some more dance and some more worship. Wow. Hey, I was asked to remind you, or for anyone who's new, uh, this is the time we do dismiss our youth. Um, youth are welcome to stay, but there's, we, we train children, we reach children at their age, youth at their age. So I think it's sixth grade to twelfth grade, is that right? Or if you feel like your heart is somewhere in there. Um, Jared has you down in the youth group, and you may go. So have you ever been to a buffet? And, and you walk out, and there's like this amazing, the first thing you see is like all the shrimp you can eat. And so you just pile up your plate, and you take one or two other things, and you go back to your seat, and you, you devour it. And as you're eating, your spouse comes back, and they have these things like, oh, I didn't see that. And you realize by the time that, that you taste that, that you wish you hadn't filled up on all that wonderful shrimp. Or maybe you walked around and you looked at everything and you still piled on shrimp. And when you got back, your spouse had something and you go, what is that? And they go, oh, it's really good. And you take a little bite of it and you go, oh my goodness. So these six, seven weeks, is our goal is that you can visit the buffet table of stations to tune into God as a wise first trip. See, 61 years now, I know, when you go to a buffet, you walk around and you just take a little bit of everything that you think you might like. Because you want to save room to go back and load up on the stuff that was really, really good. I suspect, well, I don't suspect, I know, that some of you this last week, your encounters with God and the way of the mystic has been profound. I've had a number of people talk about our Ash Wednesday service and encountering God in new and fresh ways and just touched and praise God. And I understand if you've been touched like that, you want to, you just want to keep feasting on those shrimp. Let me encourage you to not so fill up on the shrimp that you can't try that wonderful, I don't know, General Sal's chicken or something over here. Meatloaf. Now, you can skip the meatloaf, guys. <laughs> yeah. Just skip the meatloaf. Okay. So, these next couple of weeks, it's the first trip. Last week, we took our first, uh, kind of in the, the buffet line. You know, it's like eight buffet lines or seven buffet lines, six, whatever. And we took the first one down the way of the mystic. Hopefully, you picked some things up on that. If you recall, this is the slide I used to introduce the various ways that we encounter God, the heart, the pilgrim, the mystic, the head, the servant, the crusader. We're going to walk through all of them. On the one side, you see God as very present, imminent, here, knowable. On the other side, God is transcendent. He's only other. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. Uh, up top, it's you, you approach God through thinking. You, you study the scriptures. You, you, you understand systematic theology. You you engage with your mind, and down below, you engage from the heart. You engage from the, from the feeling, from the affective piece. You're, you're familiar with this. Last week, we did the mystic. Um, I just want to point out, so I circled that little thing on the bottom. Uh, all of these ones on the bottom, the mystic, the heart, the pilgrim, while the mystic and the heart are very different in expression, you know, last week we were quiet, this week we're dancing, and I'm hoping we're going to have like a second time of praise after I preach. 
hopefully short, hopefully, um, so that we can, we can engage in the way of the heart and the music's going to be upbeat and loud and I hope it's loud, Doc, turn it up, you know, crank it up. The, we have earplugs out in the, the lobby if you need them. You can go get them or you can just kind of worship God. My son used to worship God like this because our church is so loud. Um, but both of them have the same affective approach. I like to say it this way. Those in the bottom half emphasize that God speaks. That God speaks. Those in the top half emphasize God has already spoken. And so if you ask the people on the bottom half, uh, you know, what is the Lord saying to you? They'll say, well, you know, yesterday I was, I was praying and God really met me and he touched me and, and, and I just need to invest in my children. I need to, I, I need to double down on that. I've been neglectful and um, I, boy, God just really convicted me. And the top half, you ask that person the same question, they go, well, you know, I was reading in my Bible, and the Bible says to train up a child in the way they should go, and when they're old, they won't depart from it, and so I just need to double down on obedience, and I need to start training my children. Uh, the up top say, God has spoken, and that is our guardrails. They're, that's critical. It's, it's, it's the logos of God. It's the universal truth for everyone. The bottom half is the rhema of God. It's the, it's the word to you. Anyone have more than one child? Yeah. So when you raised your children, did you, did you have some universal rules? I mean, like, like when you get in the car, you will buckle your seatbelt and we're not moving until you do? You know? Um, stop annoying your brother or your sister. The kind of universal truth, rules. But then for each one, did you apply them differently? Because they're unique. And your goal was not to follow the rules. Your goal was to, to help children become the people of God that God wants them to become when they're adults. And you realize that, one, you need to be really firm and tough, and the other one, you need to be gentle. In fact, the same one, it might do it differently. So, okay, you get it. So, today we're going to talk about the heart. We're going to talk about the way of the heart. And... What I'd like to use as kind of my biblical paradigm for this is King David. King David was known as a man after God's own heart. Uh, David is the guy that wrote most of our songbook, the book of Psalms, our songbook, or our prayer book. Uh, I mean, a lot of Moses wrote some, and Asaph wrote some, and some other people wrote some, but, but David was the most prolific because in the Psalms, you read Folks, here, don't, don't read the Psalms, pray the Psalms, or sing the Psalms, or meditate on the Psalms. And embrace the Psalm the way the writer wrote it from the heart. I would flip over Ephesians and say, no, study it. Um, okay, well, you get it. Um, so we're going to be using David, and in particular, the story of the returning of the ark. And the way of the heart. So, the Ark of the Covenant, which many Americans know from Raiders of the Lost Ark, it was a box that God called the, the uh, Israelites to build when he made them his people. And it became the locus of God's presence. I mean, we know that God is 
everywhere all the time. And yet, as humans, we need to experience God localized. And so the Israelites needed to experience God localized. And so they built this ark. It was a box. And in the box went uh, Aaron's rod. It went some manna. I don't know how God preserved it, but he did. He put manna in there. Um, and then put the tablets of the Ten Commandments, put those in there, and they closed off the box. And then over top it are, are, are these representations of cherubim, their angels with their wings. And I don't know if you can read what it says up there, but it says mercy seat, because beneath the wings of the cherub was the mercy seat. Now, if you know about the Raiders, of, or if you know about the Ark from the Raiders of the Lost Ark, there was one fallacy in their well, many of them, but one in particular. Remember at the, at the scene where, where Indy has found it and the Nazis came and have taken it from Indy, and they're going to let Indy see the unveiling of the box, and all of a sudden Indy realizes, boy, if God is in there, you can't see the face of God, and he yells out to his girlfriend, close your eyes, close your eyes, they're all bound up, close your eyes. And they close their eyes, and when they open the box, everyone else looks in, and this light comes out of the box. It's like a like a laser beam that's got smoke all over it, and it flies around the room, and then zoop, 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 through every single Nazi and kills them all. So here's the fallacy. Thank you. Here's the fallacy. God was never in the box. In fact, it's a fallacy for most of us as Christians. In fact, this series is about the various boxes that we have, and, and God chooses to meet us in those boxes. But God never fit in the box. Where God fit, where God chose to localize in the Old Testament, in the tabernacle where this Ark of the Covenant was, was above the mercy seat. Folks, God does not live in a box. He lives above mercy. If you want to encounter God, don't look for the box. Look for the mercy seat. By the way, as we move into the New Testament, God then, oh, well, God is everywhere all the time, but, but we as humans need to experience it. We just, we need that. It's the way we're made. And so, God localized in Jesus. Jesus became, if you will, the box. But you don't meet Jesus, well, let me say it this way. The place you're going to meet Jesus, the place you're going to meet God in Jesus, is in the mercy seat. Jesus is the king of mercy. Oh, and just one more piece on this, the box today, it's you. The scripture says that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And one of the verses that says that means you personally, individually, that God lives in you. But the other one is you. You are the box that God chooses to, chooses to localize in for the purpose of his purposes. And people will, will not meet God in us when we are boxed, whether it's boxed in this room or whether it's boxed in our theology, but rather people will meet God in the mercy seat that sits above the box. Now, please understand me. I'm not saying theology is not important. It's just that true, true dogma, doctrine, 
the, the enduring doctrine is almost always outside the box. Trinity. There's one God. Jesus is God. The Father is God. The Spirit is God. Jesus is not the Father. The Father is not the Spirit. Spirit is not the Jesus. But there's only one God. Fit that in a box. I mean, we call it Trinity, but it's, it's transrational. It's beyond our ability. Jesus, the incarnation. Uh, Jesus is fully God, right? 100%, right? He's 100% man, right? Is he 200%? I mean, fit that one in your theology box. It, it, we could go over and over, saved by grace through faith, and yet we are his workmanship. Well, you'll see these boxes all over the place. And, and so good theology is good, but we have to be careful in that, that where we meet God is at the mercy seat. At the mercy seat. It's not in the box. Grace is free, but it's never cheap. And you'll see two things as we go through this. Number one, we meet God in the box, in the mercy seat, not in the box. But the second thing is that the box must be treated holy. It's a mercy seat, but it's treated holy. And we'll see this unpacked as we go through this metaphor. Okay, uh, a little bit of history of the ark. So the ark was made, it was put in the tabernacle. Uh, the Israelites disobeyed, and God forgave them, and they disobeyed, and God forgave them, and they disobeyed, and God forgave them. Anyone feel that, like, theme in their own life, you know? And so at some point, the Philistines came and defeated the Israelites, and they, they stole the box. And they thought it was kind of like their gods, and they put their box, or God's box, in their temple by Dagon. And I, I love the analogy. This is a whole other sermon. Because the next morning, uh, they went in, and Dagon, the idol god, had fallen down. And they propped him up, and the next day he had fallen down. By the way, if the box that God chooses to dwell on top of, called the Church of Jesus Christ, will get out into the temple or, the, or out into the, the, the places where it's not the temple in the world, and you display mercy, the idols of this world will start to fall. I don't care how much people are convinced that Dagon works. Dagon, Dagon don't work. And the mercy seat has this profound ability. So anyways, it's there, and then eventually um, the Dagon falls down too many times, so they give the box back and they give it to someone's house, and it sits there for a long time. David is anointed king. David defeats the Philistines. David takes over Jerusalem. Jerusalem is not an Israeli city, but it was given by God, and so it became the city of David. And then David said, I want to return the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. And so we pick up, and if you have a Bible, you can turn to 2 Samuel 6. And I'm going to read a couple verses. We pick up with this in verse 5, where David chooses 30,000 individuals to help him move the ark. Chapter 6, verse 5. By the way, up above there, it talks about how many and who they were. But verse 5, 2 Samuel. David and the whole house of Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord with songs and with harps and with lyres and with tambourines. We actually ran around this morning looking for the old tambourine that used to be here. 
because I was going to ask for someone just to shake the tambourine when I said that. I mean, do you, do you hear the sense of incredible celebration? I mean, they are... So, um, I had suggested that for this service, we start the prelude with the theme song of Footloose. Yeah. And I, I did defer to some of the more churchy people in our congregation who thought that wasn't a wise decision. And, and so we deferred because, you know, the act of love is, is, is deferring to the weaker brethren who can't handle certain things. Sometimes we call it weaker is actually wiser. And I will readily admit that. So if the first one is God doesn't fit in a box, but rather he lives at the mercy seat. The second one is that God's presence inspires joy and celebration and exuberance. That I understand and I love the way of the mystic, be still and know that I'm God. But, but the canon within the canon for the heart person is, shout unto God with a voice of triumph. Sing a new song to the Lord. Dance before the Lord. It's this, it's this recognition that when God's presence shows up in the mercy seat, how can you not say, wow. That song, Donovan, that you chose, the second song, that I wanted at my funeral, um, where all my life you have been faithful. And every time I sing that song, I can't help but, like David, lift up holy hands. Because the truth is, all my life I have not been faithful, and all my life he has been faithful. He has been so, so good regardless of what I've done. And if that, I don't know, if that doesn't inspire anything in your heart, then maybe you're not alive in God yet. The presence of God inspires you. And by the way, it doesn't mean you have to get the thing and dance like Jill did. That was wonderful. Uh, we, we gave a, the thing you got this morning on the back, there are like suggestions. They're recipes for the buffet items that are, are the heart. And like one might be go to a, a Christian rock concert that has a mosh pit and go down and mosh. And the next one might be go to a bubble bath and write a thank you note to God. They're both from the heart. And I'm not telling you which kind of heart to do. But it's this, it's this expression of, of this part of us that God has made. So take that home and, and try some recipes. You don't have to do them all. Just try a few. Um, okay, let's, let's continue on with verse 6 because this does go south really quick. Uh, in verse 6, uh, so there are symbols and tambourines and there are 30,000. They're worshiping the Lord. They're praising God. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. I need to pause for a second. They got lazy, and they wanted to get it from here to there. Jerusalem's uphill, and although the ark is made with these little things and poles going through it because the Word specifically says it's to be carried. In fact, the Word, the Old Testament, the, the Code of Moses specifically said it's not to go on a cart. They were lazy. They put it on the cart, and Uzzah was next to it, and the 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 animals, the ox stumbled and the cart rumbled and the ark started to fall and oh no, I have to save God and they reached out and touched it and he was struck dead. And the scripture calls it a very irreverent act. 
folks, listen to me. The irreverent act was not the cymbals and the tambourines and the rejoicing and the dancing and the praising the Lord. That was welcomed, and we'll see it again. The irreverent act was treating this, this place of mercy seat in a casual way. I don't know, I think sometimes in the church we do that. We're so familiar with the forgiveness of God, we just, we use it as an excuse to do what we want to do. This is another one of those theological paradoxes or antinomies, that, that two things that, that hold in tension and yet are true, that you are absolutely saved by grace through faith, and no matter what you've done, no matter what you are doing, no matter what you're going to do, God's forgiveness is abundant, and it's present, and it's available, and it's granted. But it expects a high bar of life. Not to get it, but in response to it. That, that the, the box is holy, and you don't put it on a cart. You don't. Poor Uzzah. I mean, he was like collateral damage. But it doesn't matter if you had a good intent. Don't do it, God said. And so there's this reality of, of total acceptance and yet requirement of obedience. I actually said to some folks the other day, and probably the, the unchurchy among us will be wise on this one too. I think we actually ought to get shirts that have the Canvas community and then says, making holiness sexy again. I mean, there is this, and, and the point is that holiness is so attractive. It's unbelievably attractive. And yet, if you've ever seen the, the old play Mame, where they're, they're showing all these people walking across the stage from all different places of life, and there's this one old woman in an all black and gray suit with a hat and a frown, and she has this fine marching back and forth, repent. And, you know, and that's the picture, and that's not God's picture. That there's an incredible uh, love relationship with God. And, you know, you've been so good, Lord. But it's also a beckoning for us to step into the holiness of God. Dietrich Bonhoeffer talked about the difference between free grace and cheap grace. Grace is never cheap. And the heart person realizes that. And out of it, the irreverent act in 6 6. Did I read it already? No? Uh, when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the ox had stumbled, and the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. You can read the rest of it. Not a good ending for him. So anyways, David's like, oh man, uh, what can we do? So he quickly takes the ark and takes it over to Obed-Edom's house. <laughs> That's scary. And left it over there, left it over there for three months. And just like God had done before, God's presence in uh, Obed, uh, yeah, that guy, um, he was, he was, God was, God blessed his house. And so for three months, he just lived this blessed life. And you guys know what uh, FOMO is? F-O-M-O, fear of missing out. Well, David was impacted by FOMO. Here is his house getting the blessing. And he goes, man, this 
no, the blessing has got to be in Jerusalem. We've got to bring the ark back. And so David decides to bring the ark again to Jerusalem. This time, instead of, of putting it on a cart like God said not to, well, let me read it. They're going to go about from Obed-Edom's house to Jerusalem. They, they, depending on the scholars you read, it's somewhere anywhere between two and a half miles to seven miles. So they're going to carry this box with hand-picked people, and they're going to have uh, a worship praise service the whole way there. And let me, let me start in chapter 6, verse 12. Now, King David was told the Lord had blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went down and brought the ark of God up, to the up from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David, that's in Jerusalem, with rejoicing. And when they were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps. So they're going two and a half to seven miles. They got all set up. They walked six steps and they stopped. And they had two sacrifices. One was a sacrifice of a bull and the other was a fatty calf. Where else do you see fatty calf in this picture? David David said, we're going to stop and we're going to recognize the holiness of God and we're going to feast. Because it is this combination of this incredibly holy God who is nuts about you and has done so much for you and is doing so much for you and wants to do even more for you, wants to live inside of you, wants to minister to people through you. That just, how can I not feast? How can I not sacrifice? How could I not see? I, I love the song. I mean, what did you do? You, you were like, you were here, and then you were here. And I mean, I can only imagine that he went through almost every one of our stations. Because I don't know what heaven's going to be like. It's going to be really good. Okay. So, oh, by the way, First Chronicles, if, if you're saying, yeah, it says they were rejoicing, but doesn't have all the symbol and all that kind of stuff. Uh, look at the parallel passage in First Chronicles. Because it talks about joyful songs. They actually chose all the best musicians, all the best singers, all the best crashers with cymbals. And it said they, they had lyres and harps and cymbals and shouts and ram's horns. But they, I mean, they, they rejoiced. They went nuts, though. Because God's that good. And then, and then by the way, he ends it. <laughs> uh, First Chronicles 16 ends with this psalm with David. It appears that David wrote it and gave it to Asaph, who was the worship leader. And they used this psalm for their whole, I don't know how long it took them to walk seven miles uh, carrying that thing. I don't know how often they stopped and sacrificed more fatty calves and bulls. But it took a long time. And all day they were using this psalm over and over and over again. Um, that day, uh, David committed to Asaph and his associates the psalm of thanks to the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord. Call on his name. Make known among the nations what he has done. Sing to him. Sing praise to him. Tell of his wonderful... Does this sound any excited? Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Look to his strength. It's this wonderful psalm. And by the way, all the while they're doing that, the people of Israel, let me read it at the end. And all the people said, Amen, and praise the Lord. Now I know here, I wish Corey was here because... I understand we don't say amen here. We say, that's right. Good word. Truth. I've heard one or two come-ons. Preach. Yeah. The point being that people responded. 
They responded because God did something in their heart. And you're like, man, I, how can I not? Hey, if God's calling on that, because God does call, we think he still speaks, let us know what he says. <laughs> Love to hear it. Walter Brueggemann said it this way, the dancing and singing respond to the assurance that God is present. You see, that ark was the, the locus of God's presence for them. And then in the New Testament, it was Jesus, and now today it's us. We are the locus of God's presence. Let me read Psalm 614. I'm sorry, um, 1 Samuel 614. God really wants us, by the way, I can tell. Then David, wearing a linen ephod, danced before the Lord with all his might, while he and the entire house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sounds of trumpets. Um, this is like not working for me. Can you advance it? So uh, this is the, the work of, of um, Rebecca Brogan trying to give a description, trying to paint a description of David's dancing. And, and she did it because when David actually dances his way into Jerusalem, his wife, one of his wives, Michal, looked at him, and the scriptures say she despised him. She despised him because he was doing things that were irreverent. They were unbecoming of a king. They were something that, that, that shouldn't be done. She said, you're, quote, disrobing in the sight of slave girls. And David said, for my Lord, I'm going to do even more. I am dancing before the Lord. They, they, scholars actually think that they, it, it literally was like a, like a little skirt, and the dancing got a little risque. Now, I'm glad you didn't do that today. I'm not asking you to show up in church like that. I am asking you to show up in church with that kind of thankfulness to God. It says, with all that I am and all that I have, God, you made my hands. David said, I lift up holy hands as an evening sacrifice to you. Um, I'm, I'm going to talk a little bit about real specifics, but before I do, um, if what I'm telling you sounds like, like, that's weird, scary, don't know if I can do it, um, I would not encourage you to try and dance here without having tried to dance before the Lord at home first. I was brand new in the faith, and, and my pastor preached something similar to this, and he said, you know, if you find something in Scripture as a way to praise the Lord, and you're able to do it. I mean, I can't play a lyre, but, but I can dance. Uh, go home and do it. And so I decided to give it a shot. I was in college. I was in the second floor of my apartment building. And so I got home. There was no one else there. I got out the vacuum. I started vacuuming the house, and I started shouting unto the Lord, praise the Lord! You know, I'm vacuuming. By the way, the vacuuming went really fast. It was just so much fun. I don't think that room ever got vacuumed so much, and I enjoyed it so much. I loved it until about 15 minutes in, Someone went, turned it off, opened the doors. A guy from upstairs, he said, could you praise the Lord a little quieter, please? <laughs> so those of you in a house that might work better than an apartment, uh, one of the things in our, in our buffet is to give it a shot. Who knows? Um, in 6, 18 through 19, they ended this whole celebration of bringing it in by giving away 
bread to everyone and date, cakes of dates and cakes of raisins, things that of people who were subsistence livers. I mean, you know, we, we, we get dessert every day. They didn't ever get dessert and gave it, gave it to everyone and said, go home and just continue to celebrate. Last week, I know some of you are upset because we didn't have any treats out there. Uh, we saved them all up and they're there this week. Because we want to celebrate. We want to say, thank you, God. The scripture talks about shouting and clapping and dancing and banging cymbals and lifting hands and all of these things that you can be all in with God and that God receives. My pastor at Penn State, when I first met the Lord, used to say, now, I don't want you to be any less enthusiastic about what God is doing than you were yesterday watching Joe Paterno and his boys win that football game. Isn't what God does better? I, we, get, we get used to it. Now we know the outcome, so why get excited? Well, because God loves when we worship Him with our whole heart. I focused on praise because heart people love praise. But there's lots of other things. Heart people love stories and sermons. Heart people love testimonies. Heart people love sharing their faith. They can't help it. It's, you know, it's, it's like out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. By the way, if, if you're like, I don't know how to share. I'm afraid of sharing. I don't know if I can share. I, you know, I don't know. Don't take a class. Just get so filled up with Jesus, you can't help but have it flow out. Just let God keep pouring in until it just bubbles out. So when someone out there in your workplace bumps into you with some obnoxious thing, out splashes the joy of the Lord. That will change people. There's the mercy seat, folks. There's the profound mercy seat. Okay, so we are going to worship the Lord with one more set, and then we're going to be dismissed. Uh, communion has many words. One of them is Eucharist. Eucharist means thanksgiving. And so we're going to worship the Lord with thanksgiving, and we're going to, but we're going to do it right after a short testimony of someone in our congregation who the Lord met a while ago and has continued to walk on this wonderful journey. I, I don't know for a fact, but I suspect she's a heart person. Watch this video with me. Okay, well, my name is Caroline Evers, and I'm just here to share my story of how God has worked in my life, and I just pray that this would be an encouragement, um, edifying for anyone who is seeking Jesus, anyone who is just drawing close to the Lord, or any path or any phase that you're in, um, any season of life, just pray that these words would um, glorify the Lord. So I grew up in just a very loving home, great parents that were just very supportive. We were not a Christian family, but um, just more humanist, if you will. Work hard and you'll see the fruit from your own labor. So I kind of just went through life thinking it was it was all up to me. I was always just struggling. I was always struggling and just hoping for something more, hoping for something better because uh, I would just continuously let myself down. I, I did my work. I worked hard. I was a, I was a teacher. Um, but I would also have these moments of just like, when is this going to stop? When, when will my life kind of be put in order? I just don't want to keep on doing this anymore. I had heard about Jesus, um, learned maybe a little bit about just his miracles, but never put the connection of God and Jesus together. That had just never been explained to me. The first time it was explained to me was actually through my now husband. Um, he was the first one to ever just talk to me about who Jesus was and just the Christian faith and what it meant to be a Christian, and honestly, just hearing everything that, you know, Jesus was the Son of God, 
sent down to take away our sins. That just kind of blew my mind, and it was just, it was extremely hard for me to wrap my mind around or to even receive or believe. We started going to church. I would just think in my head, like, oh, I hope he forgets that it's a Sunday and we forget to go to church. I was just kind of going along, just doing the motions. Fast forward a couple years, and we started going to this wonderful church, and I really just started enjoying the teachings, and I was, God was just working along that time and just kind of softening my heart and allowing me just to understand who God was, who Jesus was. It was a big church, and I decided to join a book club one summer, and we were reading the book, The Screwtape Letters, and so I just remember discussing with the group um, about prayer, and I had really never prayed at that point. I always left that up to my husband because I, deep down, I think I just felt unworthy. I felt like a hypocrite doing it, like, oh, God's not going to listen to me, or like, and I just, I knew my heart wasn't truly in it. And again, I just remember being surrounded by all of these women who were just sharing stories about their faith, and they just truly believed. I could see that they believed. I want that too. If they say that this can happen for them, then, oh my goodness, then I, I want this Savior as well. So I said, you know, I don't really, I don't really pray. I feel weird. I feel insecure. You know, I, it was my own insecurity. I would never admit that, but that was what it came down to. And I just remember this one woman who was sitting next to me, she just looked at me and she put her hand on my leg and she was like, oh honey, just talk to the Lord. He wants to hear from you. Okay, okay. If it's that simple, fine. I could, I could do that. I could just talk to the Lord. And whether it was that night or just a few days after, I don't quite remember, I spoke to the, to the Lord. I spoke to God just for the first time, just humbly telling him, I want, I want what these women have. And I just, I just kind of surrendered it there. And I just, I asked him, I was like, yes, please come take control of my heart. I want this. And I believed that he could. That was, and I believed that he could. I believed that he could do it for others, that he could do it for me. I just remember driving, driving home from somewhere, just driving, and just looking out the window, and it was literally just like the scales had fallen off my eyes. Just the world was brighter, and I was like, I just got this overwhelming feeling, just this, this fire kind of coursing through my veins, and I just knew, I just knew at that moment that God was real, and God was working in me, and I was just driving, going, this is the Holy Spirit, oh my gosh, you feeling this, Lord, like, oh my nothing that I did. It's nothing that I worked towards. It was nothing that I practiced. It was just, it was just by faith. By faith, I asked him in, and what he did for me, you know, is how he works in all of us is very personal, but um, I just I just felt the moving of the Holy Spirit in me. Things just started changing. My, he just started transforming my heart, again, just in these crazy supernatural ways. Alcohol and Adderall had always been just this crutch for me, just I relied on that um, as the pick-me-up, just to feel different, to escape myself. And and he gave me Ephesians 5.18, which says, Do not get drunk off of wine, for it leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. And I just remember saying, God, I want that. I want that. I just want to be filled with your Spirit. And he did. Like, I know that sounds just crazy. Like, he just did. And I just have not desired any kind of, you know, drunkenness or just anything else to replace just what the Spirit can do and what the Spirit brings out in me and just how the Spirit, I just allow the Spirit to shine through and that's, that's enough. That is enough. That's all I need. Oh, I just praise the Lord. <laughs> this my kind of life verse is Jeremiah 29, 13 that says, you will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. 
all your heart and God just knows our hearts. And when we seek him with all of our heart and just ask him, come in, fill me afresh, help me, um, just, just be with me, strengthen me, Lord, give me patience. He's there, he's faithful. Maybe not in the time that we would like to see, but he's there and he's, again, he's just, he's pruning, he is working, he is on the move. And, and that is just the biggest comfort for me. That is the biggest joy for me.